if you could go back to that record and that tour, uh, would you do anything differently? No, knowing how that, knowing kind of the, the series of events that would follow Kilroy, what would you go back and do anything differently? I'd have had that the Roboto mask made larger because it didn't fit well on my face. <laughs> Travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the shenanigans. It was the early 80s, and sex was still a good way to meet new people. The disappointment. Now that's a real shame when folks be throwing away a perfectly good white boy like that. And the self-confidence. I'm six foot, three inches tall, and maintain a very consistent panda bear shape. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Sure, it's not 1985 right now, but who knows what tomorrow will bring. Stuck in the 80s, it's your host Steve Spears with TampaBay.com. And today, our epic hour long interview with former Sticks frontman Dennis DeYoung. With me, as always, he's not a man without emotion. He's not what he seems. He's Times pop music critic Sean Daly. Is that Roboto? Of course it's Roboto. <laughs> I did not know that. And that's why you <laughs> That's why you went off on your own, your own personal journey, you and Dennis Young, and did this epic hour uh, hour long interview. I can't wait to hear it. This is the first time I will hear it as well. Yeah. Dennis DeYoung is, uh, as you know, it's been 12 years since he uh, was voted out of sticks. As, 12? As, it seems like longer than that. Yeah, yeah. 12 or 13 now. And he was, he, when he left the band, not of his own decision, and he's been making it on his own, performing um, the music is, of sticks. He can't call himself the voice of sticks, but he, for legal reasons. But he can say Dennis DeYoung performing That's the so music silly. of sticks. I know. I mean, it's, it's criminal, I think, anytime a band that people love breaks up and then the, and then the legal system gets a hold of it and just tears and he yeah our friendships right and he performs the the music of sticks with a huge orchestra well in this case he will be he if you see him these days out on the road you, you get a chance to either see him with his own band he's got his own little rock band that takes the place of sticks and he even has a guy now who sounds a lot like Tommy Shaw and so they will do Shmami Law. <laughs> they will do Renegade. Nice. And Blue Collar Man. But on occasion, if you're really lucky, um, you'll see him with a, a full symphonic orchestra behind him, as we will here in Clearwater at Ruth Eckerd Hall on February 24th. Excellent. And you'll be there? I will be there. Front row. I love you, Dan Spears. <laughs> Steve Spears. Who? <laughs> Larry. <laughs> no, so so um, in preparation for it, um, I, I've known this has been coming for a long time, this this this, this concert. Slowly yeah. burbling. You knew it was a, <laughs> any day now. Yeah. And then let me just tell the people, you know, of course, you and I sit next to each other in the offices of the Tampa Bay Times, and you go off to interview Dennis DeYoung, and I, I, I'm kind of looking at the clock. Hour and a half goes by. You know, and then you come, you come back to your desk, and you are soaked in sweat, and you look somewhat perplexed, lost, dizzied. You, yeah. you don't know what happened. You look like you, you got hit by a truck. What just happened? <laughs> and you can't even put into words. You're fumbling. You can't articulate. That's not unusual. You were so blown away by what we're about to hear. Right, right. So Dennis actually gave me 90 minutes. Wow. 90 minutes. And in that 90 minutes, we cover everything from uh, performing with an orchestra uh, to the early days, uh, forming the band in the na Roseland neighborhood of Chicago. Right. To um, the first power ballads, the troubles that start happening in the late 70s, early 80s, the, the, you know, the... 
the controversy of Roboto. Yes. And his solo career. And Roboto how controversy. <laughs> Page It'd 12. Be good cover band, six yeah. cover band, Roboto Controversy. So we're going to talk about it all. Uh, this show is totally Dennis DeYoung. There are no seggies. No seggies. So if you're waiting around for PPTMN or What Makes Spearsy Cry, you'll get them next show. <laughs> right. You're right. I did not cry during this interview. Dennis, did- Dennis didn't cry during this interview. He is a very um, a playful guy who likes to joke around before he sometimes gives you the, the, the real answer. Yeah. And So um, what you're telling people is to sit back. Relax and enjoy your hour-long interview with Dennis DeYoung, yes? Yes. Steve Spears, take it away. I, uh... I got Is it for the podcast? Yeah, for both. Well, we'll do, you'll use the uh, audio for the podcast and for the newspaper. It sounds a little bit to me like the invasion of the body snatchers. <laughs> hey, I, think, I think I'm seeing Kevin McCarthy, you know, sneaking around in my house going, Hey, hey, don't say a word. It's going on the podcast. Oh, man. Remember I, that movie? Yeah. Was it 1956? Or are you talking about the, uh, the early 70s? Yeah, version? the Kevin, the Kevin McCarthy. Uh, yeah. Kevin McCarthy. Kevin Kevin, yeah, I think Kevin McCarthy was his name. Was his name? Yeah, yeah. That was that was the best one. <laughs> of course, every time they remake something, it never it never gets improved in the process. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one, and it scared me as a kid. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't eat I wouldn't eat peas for a year. <laughs> the um, yeah, we actually met in person once. Um, it was uh, back in two thousand eight. You were playing uh, Clearwater's Ruth Eckerd Hall, where you're going to be again in, in a few weeks, and. Um, you were doing a show, and you were. I was backstage to write a review, and I was with Bobby Rossi, and I asked him if it, you know, if he'd be okay introducing me to you. And so we went up to you, and he said, "Hey, Dennis, this is Steve Spears from the Times," and you smiled and you shook my hand, and you said, "Oh, you're in the media. You probably have some questions for me." And um, I said, "Sure. Uh, how come Desert Moon didn't make the set list tonight?" And you dropped my hand, your smile disappeared, and you pointed to Bobby and you said, "Because this." Hole booked Night Ranger to open for me tonight. <laughs> did I really say that? Yeah, and you did it with a total straight face. And my, <laughs> I didn't mean it serious. No, no. Well, my face turned white, and you could see that. And then you just bursted out with the biggest laugh I'd ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'm glad I remember half the things I say. It was a, it was a, it was a chance to have some fun with someone who was obviously really starstruck with you. And it, it really, it's my favorite story to tell to people when they. Uh, they ask me, you know, people I've talked to and stuff like that. I always tell them the Dennis DeYoung story. Uh, you know, I learned a long time ago um, that when, when you meet people, fans or anybody, uh, it doesn't take it, it doesn't really take much, you know, to be affable and nice to them. Um, and, and it's a lesson I learned as a very young man. And and the thing is, you know, if you don't have time for fans or or the media or whoever. Uh, you know, how how else do you you you, you get to uh, you know you know have the the career you have? You you just don't have them without those people. Sure, uh, but that doesn't include that that bastard Bobby Rossi. <laughs> well, you get a chance to see him again in uh, February twenty fourth. You're down here and uh, playing with the Florida Orchestra. Yeah, well, I I like to come down and, and visit Ruth every so often to see how she's doing. Uh, she's long gone. Is she long gone? I think so. Okay, I don't know. I think the whole Eckerd family is pretty much gone, but they but they left behind this great hall, and this great hall is uh, <clears throat> it always rocks when we bring in someone like you. Or hey, yeah. Now the last time we played with Night Ranger, it was a rock show. It was no orchestra, was there? Right. It was just uh, you and you and your regular band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that band you saw has been completely changed. Wow. Top to bottom, buddy. I have. I now here's what I like to tell your. Um, your, your, your readership. I now have uh, the band I probably should have always had, but um, I started out the first, you know, the first I say the nine or almost ten years of this this solo venture I've been on by playing simply um, the music that I wrote um, within sticks and I sang, and then a couple of years ago, um, my bass player was leaving the band. And I had to replace him, and he, he sang the high harmony parts. 
And so I started looking around, and my son looked on YouTube one night and called me up and said, check this out. And there was this, this, this guy named August Zadra uh, on YouTube in a Styx tribute band. And um, he was doing Renegade and Blue Collar Man and Man in the Wilderness and Crystal Ball. And my jaw dropped. All the Tommy Shaw songs, yeah. I mean, he just, I mean, he just nailed that stuff. Like, you know, I, I just went, holy crap. And he was a great lead guitar player. I thought, well, this is too good to be true. But um, I, I brought him in and met him, and uh, we've been together ever since. And I changed my bass player. I have um, Craig Carter, a fellow out of Nashville, Tennessee, on bass, and, 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 and the, the astounding Jimmy Leahy on lead guitar. And um, we now play really the set list that Sticks fans have been clamoring for ever since I was um, uh, let go from the band back in 2000, which is all the hits. Because if you, in the last 10 years, if you went to see me or you went to see my former bandmates, you never got the meat and potatoes because they um, also... Uh, still to this day don't play a lot of the big hit records that uh, the fans really want to hear. So now you get everything. You get all, you got, you get Lady Babe, Best of Times, Come Sail Away, Don't Let It In, Mr. Roboto, Show Me The Way, uh, what am I forgetting, uh, Lady, um, and I had too much time on my hands and Renegade and Blue Collar Man and Fooling Yourself and Sweet Man and Blue and Rockin' the Paradise and then I throw in Desert Moon. Now, once again, this, this, the show at Ruth Eckerd will have the, uh, will have the orchestra and it will be, um, we'll have the rock band on stage, but we'll have the added excitement of, 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 a, um, of, of the orchestra in the show. So. When I think of Lorelei, my head turns all around. She's gentle as a butterfly, she moves without a sound. I come How much time do you get usually to rehearse uh, with an orchestra before you have to, you know, go on stage? Fifteen seconds. Fifteen seconds? No, no I'm kidding. Um, the, the, here's what happens: the the um, the conductor uh, goes there at about um, about one o'clock, two o'clock, and it, usually the orchestra rehearses from uh, for three hours, sometimes three and a half. Huh. That's it. It's a two-hour show, and they they rehearse for about about three hours. Are there any hits that are just too hard or difficult or impossible to enhance with an orchestra to the point that you just have to leave them off the set list for a show like this? Well, <clears throat> the thing is, I think the reason that the orchestra show has been successful is because the music lends itself to orchestration. You know, this is no condemnation of Chuck Berry who I greatly admire, but Chuck Berry's music will not translate as well to orchestration because of its very, you know, three-chord uh, rock and roll nature. It is, it is the music of the artists that are, you know, more pretentious, pompous, or, you know, uh, closer to uh, the kind of um, big dramatic um, uh, stylings that uh, orchestras are, are good with. But, you know, the essential thing for me is what I wanted to do was make the, the rock band the focus. So what you hear is the essence. You know this because you saw the show. But the essence is the rock band. And the orchestra is the sixth member. And I went one step further in incorporating actual pieces of classical music, tried to weave them within the confines and the structures of, of the hit records that we had, which only pointed out clearly, you know, um, how absolutely uh, crappy my songs were compared to Mozart. <laughs> Don't say that. I listened to, uh, I was just listening to um, your 2000 uh, album, uh, The Music of Sticks Live with the Symphony Orchestra, the one that you did in Chicago. And, uh, you know, where you, I think Lorelei is one of the songs that has uh, Mozart to open up for it. Yes. And um, there's another uh, there's another couple. Babe has an intro, I think a classical intro. 
Uh, don't let it in has uh, WTs, Claire Clairloon, um, and um, uh, Lady has uh, Ravel Bolero. And when we do pieces of eight, we have Hall of the Mountain King by Edvard Grieg. It's 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 for me. It's the most exciting moment of the shows. Those when, when those things happen. When those two uh, seemingly disparate musical styles come together, that's my favorite part of doing it. We'll be doing Renegade, and you'll hear Blue Collar Man. And um, probably fooling yourself and maybe too much time in my hands, as well as, you know, the other things that, are, uh, that, that people come to expect. I'd like to, if I can, take you back to Roseland in Chicago for a few minutes, if you don't mind. Sure. I was, uh, I was watching the VH1 Behind the Music show on Sticks this week, probably for the uh, 100th time. And uh, every time they show the old photo of you with the Panazzo brothers and you've got that accordion in your, in your arms, I just laugh out loud every time. Do you still have your accordion, your childhood accordion? I, it was in a flood. The accordion in that picture I still have, but it's pretty moldy. It's, it's packed away in storage someplace. I can't really play it anymore. But um, three years ago or two years, I think it was 08 uh, or 09. I can't remember anymore. I, 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 I did a thing in Germany, 20, 20 concerts in Germany. They have a thing called Night of the Proms. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Sure, thing. yeah, yeah. And I was uh, I was on that tour with Tears for Fears and uh, Robin Gibb and who else was on that thing? I don't know, 10 CC. And uh, I I, um, I played accordion on stage. And the Horner people who make German accordions um, gave me an accordion at the end of the tour. It's beautiful. It's and nice. It sounds great. But you know, uh, there's you know I, I I don't think I would be this is not going to make the AP by announcing there isn't that much call for accordion players anymore in rock music. <laughs> so, uh, but listen, you have to understand, I was 14 years old, okay, and the Panazzo brothers were 12. Now I've read, you know, when you read the Sticks history, they get the. It's funny, even in our history, uh, when we were writing it, we never really stopped to really think it through. But, you know, over the years, I really had to look back and, and I said to myself, now, how old was I when I did that? Except what? It was 1962. Wow. We were kids, though. I mean, I'm an older guy. Let's face it. I'm, you know, um, just, you know, just to ask my prostate. But um, <laughs> the, um, they were 12 years old. And this was really before, well, it was before the Beatles. By almost two years, we, we didn't know there were going to be uh, this phenomenon of rock bands that would play and sing their own music. We were just kids playing out of what they called the black books, which were these books that had all kinds of standard tunes on them. We were not a rock band. We were a wedding band. We played standards, you know. And um, that, that's what those pictures illustrate. Yeah. And so accordion at that time, people forget... The most popular uh, instrument in the 50s after the piano was the accordion. It was not the guitar. The guitar was something that came along more, more or less in the 60s, became the, you know, the predominant instrument. And, of course, it is the instrument of rock and roll. Yeah. But, um, so, you know, I, it, here's, here's, here's the humiliation that it t- teaches you. You spend your life learning an instrument that becomes obsolete and almost, you know, um, something to be derided and made fun of. That'll 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 set you on a course of trying to be an overachiever. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you, I will never make fun of the accordion. When I was a kid, about 14 years old, um, I was subjected to organ lessons because the organ was the big instrument of choice back in Lowry the- organ in the living room. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I still, my, my parents still have the organ that I was tortured with for five or six years. And it was so bad that they would drag me from football practice to, so, that, so I would not miss my organ lesson. Well, that's the story of my life here, what you just said. When I was 13 years old, I was recruited to go and play on this football team. And I told my mother, 
that I was giving up playing music because I wanted to play football. And <clears throat> I went and played that year, and we won, we, we won the city championship. And it was the next year when I was walking down the street, and I hadn't played the accordion for a year, and I heard the Panazzo brothers that I went and dug my accordion out and went back to music. Otherwise, who knows? What was the spark you think that um, that took that took uh, essentially what was trade winds, or I don't even you might have been called something else before that, and and turned it from a, a wedding standard band to a rock band? What was it? Was the Beatles on Ed Sullivan? That was the thing that it turned around the lives. You know, if you talk to any baby boomer uh, guys in rock bands, I, I would probably believe eighty percent of them, right? Would, would tell the same story I told because 74 million people watched that initial show. That's it's unheard of. I think, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, and it was an epiphany. The, I, I was, my best friend Dave, who had bought Beetle Boots in the first Beetle album, I, I just thought it was baloney. Right? I, I listened and I didn't get it. I listened to I Want to Hold Your Hand and I thought, this is all baloney. And um, we were going to a, a dance because the Sunday night dances were um, a big thing where you go to meet girls. And I was, how old was I? I must have been 17, I guess. Maybe I was 16. Seven, no, I was 17 years old. And um, we stayed, I remember we're sitting in, watching the TV in my house. We're getting ready to go to the dance with my friends. And I and he he made me watch it, and I looked at it, and I thought, well, there you go, that's what I'm going to do, just like that. And that that's when we we started to try to play rock songs. Wow. We didn't really become an actual rock and roll band, really, until JC joined in 1968, when uh, we were all at Chicago State College together, all five of us. Imagine that. Jeez. Um, actually, there were four of us. Four of us were there at Chicago State. And J.C. was a guitar player. And um, he came in, and he was a rock guy. And um, that's when we really, about right around 1968, we really started playing, making our, making our bones on playing rock music. Hmm. I remember my... Uh Sort of my music moment being 1979, I remember getting a copy of Cornerstone. And it was probably the first album that I remember learning the lyrics to every single song, uh, especially First Time, which was probably the first power ballad that I ever connected with. What, what's sad to me now, I guess in a way, is that when I, when I read and I hear that that album kind of might have been the first time where the band started to sort of, you know, disagree on musical direction. It's the first After we did Pieces of Eight, and we went to England for the first time, and we were greeted with such derision by the press because they were in the they were in the throes of the punk revolution when we got there, 
and we were labeled dinosaurs. Hell, we just become successful in 1977 in the big way. And after that experience, I came back and I started to look around, and I, and I really believed in my heart that, you know, a style of music that we had more or less um, been involved in, although we were never a prog rock band like the true ones, like Yes and Emerson Lake and Palmer or um, Gentle Giant or any people, any of those kinds of bands, the early Genesis bands. We were really a rock and roll band that had prog rock influences and pop. We were really very more, much more eclectic, but still... We, we, we still had a lot of albums that had those prog rock leanings. Um, I, did, I just believed in 19, when we came back at the beginning of 1979 that prog rock was finished. I just saw the handwriting on the wall. And I believed that if we continued in that direction, our career would be finished. And so I, I kind of led the band to making Cornerstone, which was an album from my, from my point of view, which was not trying to be necessarily softer but more natural in other words if you listen there's real is stuff like Boat on the River right stuff like First Time stuff like Babe uh, even even uh, Lights and uh, the stuff that's on there is more well, there's horns on there okay it was more I, I was going for something more organic more naturalistic because you know I, I knew we weren't going to you know evolve into a punk band that's just that's ludicrous so <clears throat> that's that's what happened at that point at that po- that moment in time, and what pe- people feel to realize is any album that we did, any album, really ninety percent of it reflected the songs people brought in. That's just it. If someone had brought in two great rock songs for Cornerstone, more that were better than, say, I don't know, let's pick one of my songs, take Why Me Off, okay? Or take Eddie Off. Two great, let's say somebody brought in Renegade and Blue Collar Man, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. They would have been on that record. But nobody really brought those songs in. Cornerstone, what people don't understand is we never over-recorded. In other words, we wrote almost to the to the song if there were eight songs or nine songs on a sticks album those were primarily the eight or nine songs that were brought in by the writers there weren't 15 or 20 cornerstone the funny thing about cornerstone you like that record and the funny thing about it is babe was never supposed to be on that record it was a song i wrote for my wife as a present Never intending it to be a stick song. And Boat on the River, when Tommy played it for me on uh, a bunch of song ideas he had on a cassette, I just said, he said, I have this song, but it's not a stick song. And I said, why not? Because I just just listen to songs, if you know what I mean. Sure. I'm not burdened by any particular category or genre of music. If it's good, I can like it. That's just me. And I heard Boat on the River, and I thought, I said, not a stick song. Well, maybe it isn't, but it's a great song, and we'll make it ours. Take me back to my boat on the river. I need to go down. Need to come down. Cornerstone really reflects, as all the records do, the specific songs that were brought in by the writers. Uh, we, we, since we were all working together but competitive with each other, as it should be, um, as writers, we would bring in what we believed were our best songs to present. And Cornerstone reflected that, with the minor exception of Babe, which was not intended to be on that record. You know, I always kind of thought it, it felt, it had a different feeling to it that didn't quite match up with the other songs on the album. Well, Babe is a, <clears throat> Babe was a demo, and the, the record, uh, the record became the demo became the hit record. It was me and the Panazzo brothers. The only thing we changed was uh, Tommy came in and played a, 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 the lead guitar solo. Otherwise, it's the demo, including all the background vocals, were sung, which were sung all by me. You know it's you, babe. Whenever I get weary. 
music did not sound like the Beatles in any way, shape, or form. I could, I could never find it in myself to use those Beatle tricks in Styx records, because they were, they were sacred to me, those, those Beatle records, right? Sure. But what they did always influenced my thinking. So, I mean, you could have revolution, you know, right next to Obladi, and I... And I could, I could enjoy it. So I, I always thought, if you, here, here, here's what I always say to people, and I'll say this to you. If I, if I, if I just brought you from a, another planet and set you down, and you knew nothing about sticks, and I played three songs for you. I played Babe, Renegade, and Mr. Roboto. I was hoping that'd be your third pick. There you go. All three songs. Will you th- what would you say those songs have in common? Uh, nothing. Nothing. Really. You're a fan. Of course. Here's what you're a fan of. You're a fan of my vision, which was I wanted Sticks to be the band that a lots of different people could come to the same party in. You know what I mean? Sure. You could have Jay Weiss, you know, his hard rocking, you know, they'd be coming in, and then the people who liked uh, Tommy doing this and me doing that and all of us, do, you'd all meet at the same place. Yeah, yeah. That was my, that was my dream for the band. It wasn't to be some um, one-note pony, one-trick pony, I'm sorry. And, um, and, and, you know, for instance, Queen. Wasn't Queen like that? If you took Bohemian Rhapsody and you took uh, uh, We Will Rock You or you took uh, um, that 50 song they did, but um bum 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 whatever that 50 crazy song was. Crazy little thing called Love. Yeah. They were the same kind of band, weren't they? Yeah, you could pick three Queen songs that would be totally different from each other. I dare you to do that with Journey. They're more homogeneous in what they do. Sure. Nothing wrong with it if you took Rush. Kind of the same thing, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. If you took ZZ, you took basically Aerosmith. They do, they're, they're, in other words, their parameters, they're more narrow in their focus. That's not a bad thing. I mean, I don't want to hear Ozzy Osbourne singing, uh, I want to know what love is. <laughs> All right? But what, 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 what people. I'd like people to understand was sticks in my mind was never intended to just be one thing. Now there are people in the sticks audience who would always want you to be the thing they like the most about you and nothing else. But that really wasn't our, our, our appeal was because it was more broad based, which included people like you. What is your favorite stick song? Quick. God, you can't. I can't pick one. How you may pick Top one? Top three: Castle Wall, um, Don't Let It End, um, and probably um, First Time. I guess. Okay. <clears throat> but Castle Walls. If you listen to Castle Walls and First Time, you wouldn't think they were from the same band. No. I mean, Castle Walls is that artsy fartsy. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Uh, dark. Prog Rocky, you know what I mean, thing, and and first time is a you know is 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 a power ballad, sweet, and then it it, it explodes on the chorus. Something I might say. Here's another thing I want to mention to, to everybody. I've, I can't say it enough. Sticks was before Queen. Oh yeah, that's right. I mean, you guys uh, date them by a good by, by, well almost a decade. Record recording by a year. By a year. And Lady was written. With that little piano beginning and the power thing and the big harmonies and the high voices, a good two years before I even knew who Queen was. But because our success came after, right? When the when and when the when the public at large discovered us, Queen, Kansas, uh, Foreigner, Boston had all come, had huge successes before us, but it was a musical style that we were doing unsuccessfully, but it wasn't derivative of anybody. Sure. Well, it was, but none, none of those bands. 
I mean, the bands that influenced us were, you know, obviously Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer early on. I said it was like The Who meets Emerson, Lake and Palmer meets Yes meets Three Dog Night. That's what I always <laughs> think we were like in the beginning. Lady, when you're with me, I'm smiling. Give me Just touch me and my troubles obey. You mentioned some of those bands like Kansas Journey, Aria Speedwagon even. These were all bands that really kind of, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, they transitioned from being not prog rock, but some sort of a, a harder derivative rock into a softer more FM friendly thing. When I was in high school, it, the big thing was wearing, you either wore your Aria Speedwagon High Infidelity concert shirt or you wore your Styx Paradise Theater concert shirt. And we would, we would break into clicks depending on which band you went to see live. I, I kind of wondered at that time of your career, did you, did you feel any competition or rivalry with bands like those from that era? Totally. Everybody, you know, everybody is, um, they're grabbing for the same ring. So there's incredible competition. And uh, mentioning REO, the, the thing that has become, uh, I guess, the most surprising to me is the, I wouldn't even say the friendship, the camaraderie, because, you know, when you're not really competing in the same arena the same way anymore, a lot of that stuff goes away. Because I know Kevin Cronin, he's a nice guy. But the fact that Sticks and REO have um, become such, so closely allied, not to you know to make a pun here, right? Would, would have been unthinkable when I when we were in the band because we uh, the guys in Sticks always thought Ario, please, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, we're I saw, Sticks, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I saw them together uh, two years ago here in Tampa. They um uh, they played together. And I, I want to say Night Ranger was the third band on the bill, and and it was Night Ranger, and then Ario came on, and then Sticks came on, and I left. Halfway, no, I don't think I made it halfway through sticks because, in my mind, it's just not sticks without without you playing with them. And so I just well, here's what I would say: I don't think if you know if I were still in the band, I can't imagine um, there there being any questions whatsoever about who should you know be the closer or the headliner. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's just no doubt. There was no doubt when we toured the last time I was in the band. We we had Kansas and, and Pat Benatar, and they were just special guests. Let me take you to, um, if you have time, I want to talk about Kilroy for a second. It, that was one of the, that was probably the first concert I was ever allowed to drive to go see on my own, so it's always got a special place in my heart. And I kept the concert shirt until my uh, washer finally digested it. But if you could go back to that record and that tour, uh, would you do anything differently? Know, knowing how that, knowing kind of the, the series of events that would follow Kilroy, what, would you go back and do anything differently? Uh... I'd have had that the Roboto mask made larger because it didn't fit well on my face. <laughs> You're wondering who I am. Machine or mannequin. I think, yeah, I think, look, I can go back, I can tell you that I would listen to Come Sail Away and change things. That's just human nature. You know, rarely will an artist look at what he's done, no matter how much it's appreciated and respected, and not believe in their heart that they couldn't, they couldn't have made it better. Here is um, the fundamental problem with Kilroy. More than any song about a robot, more than um, my encouragement and almost insistence that we try to act on stage a little bit and tell a story in a real dramatic setting, more than any of that, what, what the, the greatest failing of Kilroy is, it, is, and I've said this before, but not it, it crystallizes it, it, the older you get, is I needed Renegade on that album. 
there, when I listen to that record, I realize the really, the, the, worst, the worst thing about that record is my premise being that rock and roll music was being subverted and it was being censored to the point of putting rock stars in jail. This is my pre- this is my premise, correct? Right. And there weren't any songs on that record that really encapsulated the spirit of true rock music. There isn't a blue collar man a rock in the paradise of renegade you see what I'm saying? A Midnight Ride, a Miss America, that straight ahead balls out. You know what I mean? Had I to do it again, I would, you know, but the truth of the matter is nobody brought those songs in. Even J.Y.'s contribution, which is Heavy Metal Poisoning, was... Good, but not I don't great. mean not good or bad. Forget about that. That's another. That's a, that's that's a whole other thing. I'm talking about it. Essence was not. I mean, you can't compare Midnight Gy's Midnight Rider, Miss America, with Heavy Metal Poisoning. Forget the lyric. Okay, the music itself wasn't as hard rocking as some of the things he had done. Um, but had we uh, what what we really needed musically was a song like Renegade. Because the characters in Kilroy were based on the personalities. I mean, Tommy Shaw as the renegade rebel, right? Sure. He needed to sing renegade. Oh, mom, I'm in fear for... I mean, that needed to be on that record, a song like that. And nobody wrote one. I being the one, the least likely guy in the band to write that kind of song... You know, I, I had, I, I, I'm better at ballads in the big art rock statement. That's the, that, that's the thing that I would like to change. I would like to have had a couple more really great rock songs on there. But let's, let, let's, let's be honest. At that moment in time, what Roboto, the song reflected, was the techno explosion coming from England with synthesizers. Right? Correct. Which appealed to me. And why, why did they appeal to me? You tell me why. Yeah, you play keyboard. I, mean, I play keyboards. So there is that influence on the record. With Roboto, with High Time, with um, Cold War, and with uh, even with Heavy Metal Poison, there's that goofy synth in the background. I notice when you play Mr. Roboto live these days, you seem to to really enjoy it. Maybe maybe just a touch more than the others. Is that is that almost sort of a uh, a lingering defiance or in defense of what is a, what you know what an album you love and I, and, and many fans love, but an album that you know your former bandmates have kind of washed their hands of. Well, <clears throat> here's what I think. I think. It, it would never make any sense for me to come out publicly and deride successful music that we created. Because it, it just doesn't make any sense. First of all, I don't feel that way. Now, I've had strong opinions about some of the Wooden Nickel Prod uh, albums, which I've stated publicly that I just didn't like. Okay? Well, sure, yeah. I mean, that's and, your... but, but primarily because of my contributions. But having said that, those wooden nickel albums were not successful. And they never will be because they weren't that good. So what I believe is all this controversy, which has been, has been um, self-created, and the fact, uh, you know, with my with my um, dismissal from the band back in 1999, 
um, it, it divided the fan base, something that I could have never, ever imagined nor wanted. Because then what you're, what you're ba- essentially doing is you're asking guys like you who, who like the music just because why? Because you liked it, right? Exactly. I mean, I don't think most fans are... Are, are looking at the albums. A lot, the real diehards do. But looking at the albums and trying to find out and figure out who wrote what and whose idea was what. They're judging it. That they're, for A, they're judging the song first and the group second. I don't know how many times you can go and play someplace and people will say to you, Jesus, I didn't know you, I, couldn't rem- I didn't remember you did all those songs. Which means is they knew all the songs, right? Sure. But they, they, they couldn't exactly remember who did them. This is very typical. So my point is, I don't, I don't understand, and I have I, never participated in that by publicly deriding the music we created. Heck, I, I thought we did a pretty good job. But then you're asking the fan base to make a choice. That'd be like McDonald's saying, you know what, we like the Big Mac, but we could have made it much better. Or, or, or worse yet, we like, we, we like the Big Mac, but we're not crazy about the fries. Yeah, why would you do that? Um, I can't answer that because I wouldn't do that. So it's about the same time then that you get the opportunity to make a solo album, and it's Desert Moon. Um, and off Desert- I never wanted to make a solo album. I, I want to be clear. Tommy quit the band on stage during the Kilroy tour. He quit the band. And we were faced with what was going to happen next. And J.Y. and Tom uh, and John and Chuck wanted to replace Tommy and just move forward, go right back in the studio, do a um, do a summer sort of greatest hits tour with a live album with a replacement, and then move forward. And I, you know, I I couldn't. I, I couldn't understand that because, to me, fundamentally, I believe that the, the the fan base really liked Tommy <laughs> and liked us together. And asking them to, you know, to, to suddenly like somebody else, it just felt wrong to me. And I really believe Tommy would make a solo album and decide he'd want to come back. That's what I was banking on. But in the interim, because Tommy had already begun his plans to make his solo album during the Kilroy tour. And when I found out about it, I, um, I knew I had an option with A&M. They had right of first refusal, which means if you're going to make a solo album, they get the, they get the first choice at it. And they said they'd like to have a solo album from me. I only did it. I only recorded Desert Moon to have something to do. You spissed the train to Desert Moon was all she said But I knew I'd heard that stranger's voice before But she moved away She was standing in the rain Trying hard to speak my name They said first love never runs The songs that are on that album, could they, could they have been Styx songs? If Desert Moon would have been a huge hit for Styx Styx would have, we'd have gotten together and that song would have been fundamentally the same, but it would have been different. Because we would have gotten into a room and everybody's personality uh, would have been brought to bear to the, way, to the sound and the interpretation. And um, yeah, I think it might have been a top three record for Sticks. Tommy and I would have been singing together on the choruses. We'd have been harmonizing. You know, I made that record really by myself. I brought a couple guys I didn't even know in to play, but I, I, I made that. That was me. 
And what I was trying to make with Desert Moon, and really my first three solo albums, was any album that was not a Styx album. I was, I was trying not to imitate what I did with Styx. I was trying to carve out uh, um, a little different style for myself, more of a pop AC style. Uh, the, the other thing that strikes me about that album and and the songs and spe- specifically the videos that come from it is that it's for the first time we get to see Dennis DeYoung as both a singer and sort of a storyteller and an actor. I mean, there are big swaths of these videos where you act out a story, uh, Don't Wait for Heroes being one of them, that um, it really engages a part of your creativity that we haven't had a chance to see up until then. Was that a purposeful thing? Did you need to stretch your acting legs a little bit there? Look, I, I it started with Desert Moon. I mean, I, should, I shouldn't say it started with Kilroy. So there, there absolutely positively was a, a part of me that wanted to act. And you see it in the Kilroy video. And in, 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 in the but I would, I would clearly say were weak attempts to do it on stage it, within the confines of the show, although it worked wonderfully in real time. But if you go and film it and look at it, um, you know, I, I cringe a little bit because I think it could be so much better. But I, I, I would say that the Desert Moon video was somebody else's idea. We just presented them the song, and then Jack Cole... And a guy named Miller. God, what was his name? The kid who wrote the the the, um, the storyboard screen, what well, like the video play, the screenplay for for for, um, for Desert Moon. That wasn't my idea. That was something that the guy had written. And I looked at it and I thought, hey, that's pretty good. And uh, so I, the second one, Don't Wait for Heroes. Because of the success of Desert Moon, which was enormous at the time as a video, um, we went right back with the same team and tried to, you know, recreate the wheel with uh, Don't Wait for Heroes. Look, uh, I don't think anybody's feeling too great, so I think we ought to blow up this audition tonight and pick it up in a few days, okay? Like hell. I like that one almost better as a video. I don't wait for heroes. I, I do. I, I like the song a lot, but I also like the. I, I play it at my desk a lot. It drives my uh, people around me nuts to see me sitting there watching uh, Dennis DeYoung videos all day. Yeah, they're starting to question your sanity. <laughs> I've been questioning that for years. They're starting but, to say you've you've been overwhelmed by re- Republican <laughs> attack ads. <laughs> There's a scene where you know you're gonna blow off the audition and and, uh, and then you look at the then you look at your friends you're like like hell yeah 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 that's all yeah. stuff in the I just I got the feeling at the time I was like God damn this guy can really act I mean I wish you know I, I you know I'd love to have seen you I know you've had a couple opportunities well I did you know the thing about acting is um, you know I I did some stage acting but um, you really. You know, I never just, I, I didn't commit to it. I, I didn't commit to it. I'd had, I'd had to go to L.A., get an agent, and I, I probably should have, but I, I didn't. Um, you know, I, I, I always wanted being the Beatles more than anything, and I got that from being in Sticks. okay? That's what I really wanted. I, I would have rather been in the Beatles than, you know, been Brad Pitt. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. So to go and... Um, Go through what I would have had to go through to be an actor. Um, I, I don't know that I was, uh, you know, and I had a wife and I had two kids, and it, it would have entailed an awful lot of personal sacrifice within the family to do that kind of a thing. Sure. And I don't think I was prepared for it. So uh, I do, in some, I do have some regrets that I didn't see if I could have been a better actor. You know. Uh, 
But, you know, that saying, um, those videos, like I said, they, Desert Moon was not my idea. Somebody wrote that, and uh, I just participated in it. My, my biggest contribution to um, uh, A Desert Moon was uh, the, the original uh, script called for an M.G., and I said, no, you have to have a 65 Mustang. <laughs> because I owned a 65 Mustang in 1965. So I said, no, you got to have a, you have to have a, and, and, the, and that car is incredibly important, symbolically, to that video. The return to the past. I mean, it's, it's. Well, it's the idea of <clears throat> letting go of, of, of things that are in the past that you, you really are, no, you're not, you're no longer part of them. Those are moments in time. And they, they cannot be relived. That's painful to hear in a way. I mean, pretty much I make my, my living these days writing about the past and, and trying to come to grips with it and maybe come to peace with it in my own way. When you get older, <laughs> the, the fact is this. When you're young, of course, you're going to write about the future because that's... <laughs> that's all you got. <laughs> that's, that's what's coming up. Uh, and then, you know, the older you get, the more reflective you get. Uh, if, 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 if you're not some sort of um, uh, retarded adolescent. You know, I see Steven Tyler on American Idol. I think, well, this guy's made a cottage industry of, of that thing he's doing, right? Sure. But I just don't feel it's right for me. It feels, I don't know, there's, I don't want to get in trouble here, but there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, some sort of desperation there. And what I was saying in Desert Moon is, you know, you really can't, you can't hold on to those things. In your heart you can, but you can't really, you, you, can't, can, you can't continue to um, replay the same movie in your own life. You know, I talked to um, Chuck Panazzo right after his autobiography came out, and um, I guess that's been five years now. And we talked a lot about the old days of Sticks and the Rosalind days, and uh, the, you know, rehearsing in the basement and his feelings for his bandmates. And I asked him if if you'd reached out to him in reaction to his book, and he said, if I can quote him, he said, "I haven't heard any responses from him." He said, "The whole thing is a misfortune. I've known Dennis since we were kids, and it doesn't make me feel any better that he's not in the band." But he's gone his direction, and we've tried to stay true to ours. And then I, I asked him, and you knew I'd get around to this, about the need for a reconciliation or a reunion in any shape, form. Uh, and he said, before any of us die, I would hope it could happen. Every year that it doesn't happen is, ne- is another year that goes by. And if you wait too long, who will care? Well, it has nothing to do with me. I, I, would, I would have never left that band. That was my band, in my mind. You know, um, I've known Chuck since he was a kid, of course. And the only answer I have is, I think Chuck made it clear. You read the book? Oh, yeah. I think he made it clear. And there was a moment in 1999 or 2000 when J.Y. and Tommy were adamant about moving on without me. And legally, it, I believe it would have been, I think it would have been difficult. And I think Chuck openly admits that he was the one that cast the deciding vote. Didn't he say that in his book? I think he did. Well, then, well, I, I don't, I'm not sure how to respond. Yeah. I guess I wonder, I mean, do you feel there's a need eventually for a reconciliation? felt that since the day I was uh, asked not to, uh, the, from the day I was replaced. So you're still open to, to that idea? I, I would just ask anyone in, in the ensuing 10 years, or 11, I don't know, 11 years, what is this? 
Maybe they're going on the 12th year. I have never wavered, and what I have said at the beginning is what I've said now. You can't go back and find one, one statement that I have made that was false in any way. And I've said from the beginning that, you know, I was essentially uh, voted out of the band. And it was not my idea. We were working on a record album when it happened. I wasn't in the Sahara Desert, you know, contemplating Buddha. We were working together on the record. And um, so I think it's clear, if anybody really looks at it, that they, they decided in their minds that they, 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 wanted, they, they wanted to replace me. But that was never my desire. I think we'll see a day. I, I really think, you know, based on everything, the way things go in this world, I'd like to see a day where everyone's standing on the stage again together. I, I, can't, imp- I can't impress upon the fans enough that I did not and am, and am not standing in the way of that happening. In the meantime, are you going to be able to – are you happy with, with what you're left with? I mean, to performing the music of Sticks. With, with your own band of your own choosing, the band that you said you should have had all along, is, is, this, what makes you, is this what makes Dennis DeYoung happy these days? I mean, are you content with, with where you're at? I think the band I have now is, um, recreates this music in a manner and the spirit, not just, not just the playing and the singing, but the stage presence, the performance of these guys in, in a manner that is as close to the original thing as you can get. The original thing would 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 involve the original cats. What will I do if you say we're through? I need you to stay, honey. Don't let it end this way. Now I'm covered in sweat. Unbelievable. An hour-long interview. Dust Young by the great Steve Spears. And uh, wow. I mean, the way you draw answers out of these guys is impressive. You know, the, the, the sad thing is, for as complex as a reunion and far off as a reunion seems to be with Sticks, getting Dennis Young back with Tommy Shaw and the guys, it seems like a simple phone call would do it. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Here's the thing. I mean, God, it's so tough, I imagine, to be in a band and to have a, a new lead singer when the old lead singer is still alive. Like, ACDC doesn't have this problem. I mean, Bon Scott... You know, left us and it's not coming back. Journey, on the other hand, um, in such a recent interview with Steve Perry that it feels like it was almost yesterday, you feel it's the same thing. I mean, uh, Neil Sean picks up the phone, calls Steve Perry, and maybe Journey tours again as one. Um, with with Sticks, it seems even more simple. I mean, Dennis is still out there performing the music. He's still. As capable of singing those songs, if you've, if you've seen him live lately, like I have a couple of years ago, he sounds exactly like he did in 1980. Yeah. No difference whatsoever. Um, it would seem like they could, they could go into a rehearsal hall, uh, give each other hugs, work out the kinks for 30 minutes, and play Madison Square Garden. It's, if somebody would just make a phone call. Yeah, it's just rock and roll, guys. Yeah, this is you know? not... You get one nuclear, chance in life. Uh, yeah, yeah. thermonuclear war. It's it's rock and roll. Get back in there, but jeez, these all these like so headstrong. I mean, what does stick do? What does sticks do with Lawrence Gowan, who's their lead singer now? I mean, sorry, sit this one out, Lawrence. We're, Dennis is going to come back for one more go. I think Lawrence would understand. Lawrence, yeah, well, amazing. But I got to ask you this, Steve. Earlier in the show the preface of the the interview, you said that you talked to Dennis DeYoung for 90 minutes. Yeah. And yet, we heard an hour. 
Right. Is there, are there 30 more golden minutes of you and Dennis DeYoung? There's 30 more minutes. <laughs> um, about the time that this interview ends, as we hear him talking about performing with his band nowadays, he and I went off the record for a while. Wow. And talked about issues, mm-hmm. I'll say. Um, not, not really anything deep. But, but after we did that, we started just kind of um, shooting about music today, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, how he feels about uh, Radiohead. Oh, yeah. He and he picks me. a fight with, with Sean Daly, not even knowing who Sean Daly is because he says... Most people do. Yeah. People hate me without even really knowing me. As well, they should. But he really gets upset about music today. And, and so I've got these... 30 extra minutes, maybe 20 extra minutes once I edit it down. I don't know what to do with it. So if the masses, if Stuck in the 80s Nation craves more Steve Spears and Dennis DeYoung, you will deliver it to them. Sure. Why not? So let's hear. Let's light up those phones. Let's warm up those Send phone Send those lines. fax, those, those newfangled fax. fax machines that, we're, <laughs> that people are talking about. Um, and uh, there you go. And then, then you'll release it maybe in an 80s News Now, maybe in some sort of uh, yeah, we'll abbreviated see. version. You'll give sure. them more. But I can't imagine that anyone is leaving the table today um, underfed, you know, unsated by your uh, great interview with Tess Young. Tremendous job. You're on a roll. Who's next? I know. Is the bucket true? list is almost empty. Lamal by Kaja Gugu. Three hours long. <laughs> the early years. The Ten Commandments. The Kajagugu uh, years. <laughs> and it's called The Never Ending Story with Lamar. Oh, it's a podcast. Right. It's a spin off podcast. That. Spin off podcast. <laughs> He's my new co host. Oh, I that know. hurts. Why? Why'd you cut me like that with Lamar? <laughs> what kind of segment? Turns were- out Lamar is a sharp knife indeed. <laughs> hey, um, if you get a chance to see uh, Dennis Dion on the Road, I highly recommend it. Um, I've seen him so many times. Sticks music is uh, forms the cornerstones of so many of my fond feelings towards the '80s. So it's special to me. I hope you can make it special to you. In the meantime, Dennis DeYoung, Sean Daly, myself, maybe Lamal, are hopelessly stuck here in the '80s. And so, my friends, will say good night. But time has claimed its prize. But tonight can always last as long as we keep alive. The memories of paradise. Stuck in the 80s is produced by the Tampa Bay Times and TampaBay.com. Read our blog at TampaBay.com slash blogs slash 80s. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. To the best of times. 